Well, in the past few weeks, we have been talking about faith. Our readings from the book of Hebrews have given us lots of space to think about the nature of faith and how faith is actually a gift that's given to us by God, not something that we conjure up ourselves or not something that we can find on our own, but instead we receive it as a gift from God. God then grows it in us by grace, and that as it grows, it is intended to result in actions. That again, faith isn't just something that we have, but it's something that begins small and can grow bigger, and ultimately people see faith in our life. They, they see the way that faith works itself out when they, when they watch our own actions. Hence, today's reading from the book of Hebrews leaves behind the kind of exegetical and the eschatological discussion of faith, and instead it turns towards a series of moral commandments, moral imperatives. It, it seems right, as the author to the Hebrews is finishing the book of Hebrews here in the last chapter, chapter 13, that he or she, uh, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, would kind of leave behind that theologizing, if you will, about what faith is, and come perhaps a bit full circle to these actual actions that we are to see uh, result from our faith. Now, this is always something we need to be careful about as believers, right? Because the actions, the moral commandments and imperatives of the scriptures, because we can reduce the faith uh, to doing if we think too much about this, because mostly we're doing people. I mean, that's my guess that we're all doing people. Um, I get up and I go for a run and I run the same route every day, at least during the school year. Um, and I'm running the same route. I know it by heart. It's, it's boring. It's the same. And, uh, but, you know, so my mind immediately starts going to things like, what do I have to do today? Right? What needs to get done? And, I mean, weekends as well, is it not? You get up and you think, what do I need to do today? What yard work, perhaps, could I get done? And I would say, even if you think you're not a doer, but you wake up and you think, what TV show am I going to watch today? What am I, what am I going to binge today instead of doing that yard work I probably should be doing? There's, a, there's still a doing to that. And so I want us to just be careful that the faith, the Christian faith, cannot be reduced to just moral commandments and imperatives. But here we have the author of the Hebrews giving us some moral commandments. And this is not unusual Paul, the Apostle Paul himself often does this. Matter of fact, you can be happily reading along in the epistle to the Galatians or something like that, where Paul is saying, there's no more law. The law has been done away with. It's all about grace and freedom. And you think, that's right. And then Paul says, now do these things. (laughs) And you think, wait a second, Paul, I thought we said we left the law behind. And this is about grace and freedom. Well, of course, moral imperatives are not over against grace actions. They are They are a part of it. So our faith, which takes shape in actions, the author of the Hebrews today gives us six to think about. The first one occurs in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Well, the English phrase brotherly love there is Philadelphia, right? Like our city, it literally means brotherly love. But maybe we should think of it more also as just mutual love. Let mutual love continue. But mostly what it's talking about by thinking of brotherly love is it's we are to love those who are closest to us. So we love family. 
We love those friends that are close to us. We, we love our fellow Christians in our local parishes and, and those that we worship next to week in and week out. And so the first thing is love. Love those who are close to you. Love your brother. Love your sister. Right? Love your neighbors as yourself. Love those you worship with. But this is not over against loving others because in verse 2 we get the second point. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Well, the word hospitality there in Greek is actually philozenia. Philo, love. And then xenia, the stranger. So the word here is let brotherly mutual love continue, but also do not neglect to love strangers. So that's what showing hospitality is. So, so sorry, this isn't tea cakes and coffee for the neighbor, right? This is loving the stranger. So it's loving those who are unknown to us, loving those that we see maybe out in the park going through the trash can or, or loving those that we shop next to at the Trader Joe's or the Albertsons or Vons, wherever you shop. It's, it's if, if, if the um, Philadelphia is those who are closest to us, Philozania are those who aren't close to us. Right? So the author of the Hebrews isn't saying just love those who are the easiest to love. Though, let's be honest, family aren't always the easiest people to love, are they not? But, like, but in one sense, the people who are closest to us are the people that we pick. Right? If I meet someone new and I really don't care for them, I don't have to really have much interaction with them again. I can even work with them and be cordial, but I don't have to have them into my house. Right? I don't have to develop a deep, meaningful relationship with those. So in one sense, loving those close to us is easy because we've picked those people. But loving the stranger, that's, that's hard. Or at least could be harder to love the stranger because strangers are everywhere. We are next to them each and every day. But in either case, the author to Hebrews, nor any place in the New Testament when it talks about love, is it saying, dig deep into yourself, look for that emotion that you might then be able to conjure up certain actions and words and show other people that you love them. No, the love of our brothers, the love of strangers are both love that is rooted ultimately in the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The great commandment, again, is not like love God and love others by digging deep. No, instead, we love God because he first loved us. And from the love of God that flows through us, that comes to us and flows through us, we can love others. Right? Sometimes people will say something like, well, I can really only love someone if I know them. It's not true. It's just not true. God commands us to love everyone because he's, again, not telling us to conjure up our own subjective emotion, which we can call love, but instead to let the love of God manifest in the person of Jesus Christ work through us so that the love we show to the stranger is actually the love of God simply refracted through our lives. Think about the gospel reading that I just read for us. When you give a dinner party or a banquet, now I feel like we're in one of those 
shows, right, where people are looking to renovate their home. And how will we ever entertain with this outdated kitchen? But I don't throw a lot of dinner parties and banquets. But if I do, right, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. For most of us, who's left to invite? Right? If I'm going to throw a dinner party or a banquet and I don't invite my friends, my relatives, my rich and perhaps poor neighbors, who's left to invite? Well, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Why? Because those people can't repay you. You'll get nothing in return for having those people over to your dinner party. But you know what? You invite that rich neighbor and at some point he or she is going to feel obligated to reciprocate. And then you just get in that vicious cycle of dinner here, dinner there, dinner here, dinner there, dinner here, dinner there, right? No one. You might not even really like the dinners. You just can't break the cycle. You don't know how to do it, right? But when you give a feast, no, don't invite those people. Get the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. What greater love could that be to the stranger than having them in where? Your home where you have cooked and fixed a meal for them. They can't repay you. But God will at the resurrection, the gospel says. So again, what a great example to us of what it can perhaps and should look like when we talk about loving strangers. So love those close to us? Absolutely. Probably one of the easier things that we often do. Love strangers? Perhaps a little more difficult to do. Right? Because stranger by nature means that you don't know them as well. But yet here we're told to love them. Moving beyond love, in verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. And remember those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. So this kind of remembering that the author of the Hebrews is talking about is, is remember them as if you were with them. Remember the mistreated as if you too could be mistreated, as if you too could be harmed in your body. It's identifying with them in such a way that we're able to resonate with their situation. This is no mere intellectual act. This isn't just sitting and thinking, oh, it must be hard to be incarcerated or to be mistreated. No, it's no mere intellectual act. It's some sort of a spiritual embodiment of those very conditions. At Epiphany, in our prayers of the people, we pray for several people who are incarcerated. I don't know any of them personally, but in preparing for the sermon this week, I realized that I haven't really ever stopped and remembered them in this way. Sure, I I add my... um, my response to the person uh, offering the prayers on behalf of the people, but their name's on a list. I know they're incarcerated, but have I identified with them? Do I know what that means to be thinking about what their day in and day out life may look like? The closest I think I've ever been to prison was boot camp. (laughs) Because I couldn't go anywhere I wanted whenever I wanted I was told when I was going to get up, when I was going to go to bed, and I was told what I was going to do every day for a number of months. So maybe I have a sense of what those individuals are going through. But the author of the Hebrew says we need to remember them. And I think this is an extension of loving the neighbor. 
that we identify again with them, not just think thoughts about the, those who are in prison, those who are mistreated, but somehow to try to enter into their suffering. And who has set the greatest example for us? None other than Jesus Christ himself, who though he did not need to suffer to pay for any of his own sins, suffered nonetheless to pay for our sins. So love those closest to you. Love the stranger. Remember those who are mistreated or in prison. Fourthly, happens to be in verse 4, hold marriage in honor, not by defiling the marriage bed, for God will judge both the fornicator and the adulterer. There is, it appears, a direct connection between individual sexual morality and the health of the faith community of the church. We live terribly private lives, don't we? I have a zero property line house. I don't know if any of you have a zero property line house, but basically it means my neighbors own right up to the wall of my house and I get to own up right up to the wall of my neighbor's house. So if I needed to paint that wall, tent my house for termites or something, I have to get my neighbor's permission, right? And my neighbor has to get the same. But they own right up to what? A wall, right? So behind that wall, they have no idea what's going on, right? We have walls between us and other people. I imagine in the first century when this was written, the walls that may have existed were not like our walls, right? Their walls would have been much more uh, thin. Sound would have traveled through them, less, less solid than ours. And, and not only that, but I've got a wall and my neighbor's got a wall. So we've got a couple of walls between us, right? And so when we think about holding marriage in honor, right? It's that kind of the mentality of something like, well, whatever happens in my house doesn't bother anyone. It's, well, that's actually not true. I mean, it's true that it might not bother them in the moment, but there seems to be this connection, according to the author of Hebrews, that by defiling the marriage bed, right, both for fornicators, those who are unmarried and defiling the marriage bed, but also adulterers, those who are married and defile, that, again, the point is, is not that people don't make mistakes of which they can be forgiven, but yet there's this direct connection about the way it ripples into the community, I personally don't see any real connection between this list of six things. I'm not sure how we went from loving those close of us to loving the stranger to remembering those in prison and who are um, mistreated to now being talking about sexual immorality. But for for this author, this is right up there of the six things I want to tell you about what faith should look like when it works itself out in your life. This is one of them. So obviously we have to take it seriously. Number five, maybe this one's a little closer to home. Maybe you think I haven't defiled the marriage bed. Well, number five, be content with what you have and keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. And be free from the love of money. I imagine that hits a lot closer to home for many of us. In part because we don't always even know what the love of money looks like. Right? Wealth management people, and by the way, wealth management's complete misnomer. Is it not? Like, I'm not wealthy, but someone will be more than happy to manage my money for me. Right? But anyway, wealth managers will 
give you the sense of, well, what do you want your retirement to look like, right? What's kind of your family history from a health perspective? You know, how long might you live, right? So we, we do plan, but no one, the scriptures in particular don't tell us like, well, well, what does it look like when I'm loving money too much, right? Have I put too much in the bank? Have I put too much aside for my retirement? Being content with what I have, well, I mean, okay, but does that mean I'm not allowed to have anything more? Right? These are, these are boundaries. Like, the Bible just doesn't tell us this is what it necessarily looks like when you love money. This is what it looks like when you're being not content with what you have. But the author to the Hebrews is less concerned about naming an amount, putting a boundary on it, if you will, But instead, the author wants to make two points of why we shouldn't love money and why we should be content with what we have. The first one is is from Deuteronomy 31.6, which the author uh, quotes. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why should I be content with what I have? Why should I be free from the love of money? Because I have all that I need because it comes from God. Because I have that which I need because not only does it come from God, but God will not forsake us. The reason I can be content is because God ultimately provides for me. And again, I realize this is, this is tough in today's world when people are struggling to make ends meet. And I'm not talking about people with too much stuff and have kind of extended their credit. But I mean, people who are living in poverty or close to poverty, it's, it, it sounds like, well, where is God for them? Well, if we think that means that they're supposed to have all the stuff that, you know, North Americans typically own, I'm not sure if, that, if that's exactly what the point is. Maybe the, the real issue there is that I have too much stuff. Not that they don't have enough, but the point is, is God's not going to forsake us, so we can be content. If God was not trustworthy, then it might be wise for me to look out for myself to put more money aside than perhaps I should. But because God will not forsake us, I can be content in him. And also, secondly, the author quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The context of the psalm is that God is steadfastly good to his people. So not only does God provide everything, but his character is such that he will provide everything. I want to mark this date on the calendar because I did something yesterday that I rarely do. I got rid of some books. It's it's calendar worthy. Now, mind you, I had to get get rid of some books to make room for other books, but that's beside the point. The the point is, is uh, Christina uh, hosted a shower yesterday and we had uh, Nathaniel's backpack had, had been a recycled backpack from his brother. It broke this week and and so we said, go ahead and order a new one. It came in this, this box. And Christina said, oh, I'm going to use that box to take things up to the shower on Saturday. And she came up to the shower, was unpacking and said, oh, you know, the box is done. And I said, no, I need that box. Right. That's a good box. I got to put books in it to give away. And I don't I didn't quite catch her facial expression when I said I was giving books away. So I yeah, she didn't hear me. So I said it again because I wanted to signal my virtue. And uh <laughs> Like, I need the box because I'm getting rid of books. I didn't, again, I didn't necessarily say it's because I replaced it with other books. But the point is, is, is like, you know, for me, as I've said before from this pulpit, I'm sure. And if you know me, I mean, I'm a professor, I'm a priest. Books are, I love them. 
I love them a lot. I should have brought the one I got this week from 1692. It is a beautiful book, right? But the point is, is I don't know. I probably have too many books. Christina would say yes. But I mean, like, I don't... When should I be content with books, right? Am I free from the love of money? Well, books are at offer. I could actually get rid of all of them and be perfectly fine, right? Because I won't go hungry by not owning books. But, but for those who, who are hungry, they need to know that God does not forsake us and his character is such that he wants to be good to people. And, and for those of us that do have and don't suffer from that kind of paycheck to paycheck reality is simply the fact that we too need to be admonished and be reminded that we can be content because this is all about God at the end of the day. So love those close to you. Love the stranger. Remember, identify with those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Hold the marriage bed in honor. Be content with what you have and allow your life to be free from the love of money. And then lastly, verse 7, remember those who have come before us. Those who came before us speaking the words of God and thereby setting an example by their way of life. Remember those who have come before us. In, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says, remember your leaders. But we know that the author of the Hebrews cares about those who have come before us. Just think about Hebrews 11 and Hebrews 12, which we looked at in past weeks, right? Re- remember Abraham, who left everything. Remember Sarah, who was past the age of bearing, but trusted in God. Remember, remember these examples of people. The author to the Hebrews wants to put the saints of God before us so that we can imitate them in their actions. So if any of these other five commandments might seem a little too hard to do, I think the point the author of Hebrews is saying is look at those who have come before. They've done it. You too can do it. And again, this is such a great reason to observe the liturgical year, not just in the parish, but even to some extent in your own life. Because the point of observing the liturgical year is not just to know when to change the color of the chasuble, But it's because of those fixed feast days of the men and women of God that come around every year and remind us of the examples that they have set and remind us of the ways that we need to be like them. And if we're good and careful readers of the collects on the feast of the saints, then we will see that we don't pray to them. We pray about them, asking God to let us follow their good examples. So let me close with a verse that we didn't read this morning. It's not appointed for the reading, but it happens just a few verses down in the same chapter again, the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. So again, love those close of you. Love the stranger. Remember those who are mistreated and in prison. Hold marriage on or be content. Remember those who have gone before us because their way of life sets an example. Then verse 16 says, do not neglect to do good. So if we were to say, how? How am I to be good? Well, here are six examples of ways that we're to be good. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Why? For such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. So again, at the end of the day, we do not do these things for their own benefit. We don't do these things for our benefit. But we do these things because God commands us to do them and they are pleasing to him. So as we think about living out our faith, as we think about asking God to grow us by grace in our faith and to live it out, may these six imperatives become for us examples of how to do that.
And let us give thanks to God that he has made it possible for us to be not only people of faith, but people whose faith works itself out. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.